This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, along with my co-host, Josh Cumston. On today's program, we're going to listen to a message that was taped at our Nebraska Christian Senior Retreat. Pastor Joe Malarkey, who's a youth pastor at the Monroe E. Free Church, was our guest speaker. Let's join Pastor Joe with today's message. Jesus has three offices, prophet, priest, king, okay? I want to briefly just look at a king. What does a king do? He rules. What does he rule over? A kingdom, okay? And in that kingdom, there are people. What else do you need to have a kingdom? Land. Okay, good. So, so a king needs land and people to rule. Like You guys are probably like, duh. Okay, right? These are important things. Okay? If Jesus is a king, he's going to have a land, right? I mean, he's king over everything. So he has the land. The problem is the people. Like as things stand, there were no people that could be in Christ's kingdom. Does that make sense? Because in order to be in Christ's kingdom, you had to be perfect. And as far as I, I know, there are no perfect people. And so what had to happen was something had to be done in order for this kingdom to be filled with people. And that is where the king comes into play. You see, the king, not only as the ruler of the realm and the king and lord of the people, he's also the person that becomes the sacrifice in order to allow imperfect people into the kingdom. You see, in Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God who came as a man, put on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived this life of perfection and died in our place, as this King who does this, the question or or the so-so problem of God's love and justice is answered. Because He does punish the guilty, except our guilt is laid on Jesus Christ. And and in letting our guilt be transferred to Jesus Christ and punishing Him, it allows us then to take His righteousness and become children of God. We can now inhabit the kingdom, okay? Now, Now, you may think, where are you going with this, okay? Let's think back to Exodus, okay? Exodus is a story about a a man named Moses. Moses and his people are captives in where? Egypt. Egypt. Thank you. Okay, So they're in Egypt. And it's time for the people to leave. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. No. Okay. So God begins to show his power, his might, his rule and authority over all things by sending all of these plagues in the last judgment that is to occur is the death of the firstborn. Where the firstborn of every household would die at night when the angel of death passes over the house. Now there is a way around this. is to take a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, and to wipe its blood on the doorposts of the lamb. And in doing so, the angel of death would pass over that house. Are, are, we, are you following me here? Okay, how do you get blood out of a lamb? You kill it. Okay? It becomes a sacrifice. You understand, 
Okay, are, are we all clear on the story that how that takes place? Passover, the Israelites, they sacrifice the lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. Okay, they wipe the blood, they cover their doorposts with the blood, the angel of death passes over and the firstborn is spared. Are we clear how that happens? John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? Do you know? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, from the moment Jesus entered into humanity, from the moment He was born, His mission was not to set up this great and glorious kingdom of the Jews at that time. His mission was to redeem a people from their sin. People who are slaves to sin, His mission is to bring them out of that slavery, to take the broken relationship between God and man and fix it. It's called reconciliation. To reconcile. To take it, it has a really neat picture. Has anybody ever broken a bone? Yes? Anybody compound fracture? You know, where it's like sticking out? No? Okay, well, those are nasty. But what happens is when you reset that bone, it grows back and it becomes stronger. And so that, that's the word picture that's given of this reconciliation, this way that, that Jesus fixes the broken relationship between God and man. Now, what you have to understand is for, for centuries, people had been hearing about the Messiah who was going to come and to make things right. This is Old Testament. This is prophecy. Okay? One day there was one who was going to come. He's going to make everything right. And so as Jesus arrives on the scene and He declares Himself the Son of God and people start to see that, that He is the Messiah, they have this picture in their mind that He's going to wipe out the Romans. And that he's going to set up the Jewish kingdom. We'll no longer be under the rule and authority of those nasty Romans. No, we will be the ones in charge. And Jesus in the book of Mark, as he's talking with Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who's come to fix everything and to set up your kingdom. And, and, and Jesus tells Peter, he says, um, right, but first we're going to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests. I'm going to be killed, and three days later I'll rise again. And Peter's like, Yo, whoa. He like takes Jesus aside, and he's like, Jesus, man, you can't be talking like that. You can't say stuff like that out here. We're all expecting you. You know, kingdom, mighty, no more Romans. It's going to be great. You can't be talking like that. Which I think it's funny that Peter takes the Son of God, who he just declared as Messiah, and tries to rebuke him. He does this privately. You know, like, hey, Jesus, just come here. Let me talk to you. Let me talk to you, man. And, and Jesus publicly in front of all the disciples says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You don't know God's plan for right now. I do. I have come to redeem, to reconcile, to be a ransom. Which is where we pick it up in Colossians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ, see already Paul's making an assumption that the people he's writing to are Christians. They are believers. Jesus Christ is their Savior. He's making that assumption. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just side note, that's the second time Paul said that in this letter. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, you were also raised with Him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So we have a picture of Jesus, and He's the Son of God. He's, he's 100% God. He's 100% man. And we have a picture of who we are in light of that. You have perfection, and then you have us as sinners. And, and the difference there is, is a separation where we cannot be with God on our own. We can't do enough good things. We can't be a nice enough person. We can't give enough money. We can't do anything to gain merit, to gain favor with God. That, that's, that's part of the, the reason why it says we're dead. We're dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. And so you have Jesus Christ who comes and, and He lives this perfect life. Okay? And, and, and through this life, He kind of shows us, He gives us a, a real-life example of how to live. You know, He reaches out to the poor. He reaches out to those who may not be the most popular. And, and, and through this life, He does these miracles where he, he starts to roll back the curse. He brings people back from the dead. He heals people who are sick. People who have these physical ailments, they're cured. He starts to roll back the curse and he gives us a small glimpse of what his kingdom will be like one day where there's no death, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. He's tempted. Tempted by Satan himself. After fasting for 40 days, he, he goes into the wilderness. He says he's led by the Spirit. It was no accident that Jesus went out there. No, he is led by the Spirit, and he's tempted. And, and it's neat to see how he handles these temptations. He doesn't just try to do it on his own. No, what does he do? He calls on Scripture. And every time he's tempted, he answers with Scripture, which is also a great model for us. As we become tempted, and, and trust me, you're tempted every single day. That's why it's so important to know what this book says, to memorize it, to hide it in your heart, because during those times, it's going to come up. You're going to be able to remember what God's Word says and answer these temptations with Scripture. He's tempted. He does not sin. He continues his ministry. He trains 12 guys. And, and during this time of training, he begins to tell them and to show them who he is and what his plan is. And like you said with Peter earlier, they, just, they still really didn't get it to the point. On the night he is betrayed, they all scatter. They scatter. You know, we've probably read the, the story of the crucifixion. 
You know, it, it comes time for Easter, and it's probably one of the things that, that you focus on, whether it's in church or in youth group or at school or with your family. You probably focus on this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you everything that happened, but, but Jesus was beaten. He was beaten to a point where you could hardly recognize who he was. He had a beard, and that beard was pulled out. Now, I have some, some facial hair, okay? And I can pull on it, and it doesn't really hurt. But I'm not pulling real hard, because if I start to, it, it starts to hurt. Now, his beard was probably a little longer than, than my facial hair, but to have that pulled out, to take a crown of thorns, and to place it, it's not like just setting it gently on his head. No, these, these long thorns are jammed onto his head. He is mocked openly. He is spit on. And I don't, to me, that, that's such a disgrace to spit on somebody. I mean, it's like basically saying you're not worth the life that you have to spit on somebody. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's whipped. The flesh is torn off of his back. A robe is placed on him. He's continuing to be mocked. He's forced to carry his cross out of the city and up the hill. He can't even do it because he's been beaten. He's so exhausted by everything that he's gone through that he needs help. He's, he's nailed to a cross, which I can't even imagine the pain of that. And death by crucifixion was actually death by suffocation. As you're hanging on the cross, it would be, you would be unable to take very good breaths. You wouldn't be able to breathe very easily. And the only way that you would be able to breathe is actually to lift yourself up to take a breath, and then you would slump over. You see, he's already been beaten and battered and bruised so brutally that his strength is gone. And so every breath that he takes, he fights for and eventually what would happen is if it would take too long, the soldiers would come and break the legs so they couldn't, pull, they couldn't push themselves up. And eventually they couldn't breathe and they would die. It didn't come to that point with Christ. His legs were not broken. He had died before that had happened. But you see, I mean, crucifixion would not be allowed today in the United States. It would be considered inhumane. It's a very terrible way to die. And you see, the Romans, they were good at it. They were really good at it. In fact, they used the idea of crucifixion to show, to flex their power and their might. There's a road called the Appian Way, and as it led into the city, they would crucify people along this road. And so this road would be lined with crosses. And basically, it was Rome's way of saying, you don't mess with Rome. We are in charge. We are the power. We are the might. You mess with Rome, and this is what happens. You see, it's a very brutal death. But in this brutal death, the story doesn't end, does it? I mean, of course, you know, as we celebrate Good Friday and then the resurrection, we see that three days later, Jesus comes back from the dead. Death has no power over him. He is Lord, God, King of the entire universe. His resurrection guarantees that death is no longer powerful. Sin has no power. And here's, here's what it does for you and for me. One, it guarantees us a future resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is going to talk a lot about that future resurrection that we have, the hope that we have that one day we will not have to worry about death. Now, we still die now. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. It says we are, we are sown. We go into the ground 
corruptible, but we are raised incorruptible. You see, we share in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection of Christ. This is what baptism pictures for us, really. As we go into the water, it pictures us dying with Christ. As we come out, it pictures us being resurrected, raised to new life. Now see, here's what he did. Before the sacrifice of Christ, people had to go to the temple. And on a daily basis, they were making all of these sacrifices. They would be bringing animals in. They would be killing these animals, sprinkling blood on certain places. And if, if you read through the book of Leviticus, which is a really fun read, okay? If you want to know about kidney fat and how to burn this and all that stuff, it's in there, okay? Very, it's very, very specific. See, this is how God, it's how serious God takes His holiness. He says, you sinned. And now I'm going to set up the sacrificial system and you need to follow it. But see, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us the blood of bulls and goats is not good enough. Because it had to keep happening. The blood of bulls and goats could not deal with once and for all the problem of sin. See, because we can't relate to a bull or a goat. It can't relate to us. It can't take our sins. It hasn't lived our life. You see, that's, that's the beauty of Christ. As He walks in the shoes and the sandals of a man, as He lives the life of perfection, He relates with you and with me. And in doing so, He is able to be that once and for all sacrifice. The one necessary. So there has to be, there's no longer a need for any more sacrifices. Bulls, goats, sheep, their blood does no longer need to be spilled because we have the perfect one in Christ. And I love what it says here in Colossians. It says, He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And here's how He did it. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed. He took the power that sin has, the power that death has, and He took it away. He stripped it of its power. Because of His death, all of that is powerless. It is rendered powerless. He beat death through death. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. His death is so important in the life of Christians, in the life of believers. Without the death of Christ, there is no atonement. There is no way to be right with God. But see, it doesn't, like I said, the story doesn't end there. His resurrection gives us new life. It gives us hope. He didn't stay dead. Our Savior is not dead. He is alive. The resurrection is proof that the sacrifice that He made was acceptable to God. Acceptable to the Father. It was well-pleasing to Him. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And He makes intercession for us. He's there talking to the Father for us on our behalf. You see, this is where His role of priest comes into play. The book of Hebrews tells us that He is our great high priest. He is there. He is the mediator between us and the Father. There was one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ. Without Him, we have no mediator. We cannot go to the Father. So in this resurrection, now that, not, now that the power of death has been defeated, the power of sin is no longer reigning and ruling over us, we now have this new life. 
And so, real quick, let's flip to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. While you're flipping there, I just want to, I'll catch you up on, on kind of where Paul is as he's writing this letter to the Romans. Chapter 7 is a fun chapter because that's the chapter where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, that's the things I do. And what Paul is really doing there, he's being open. He's being honest with his readers. He's being transparent. He says, I sin. I hate it. I sin. There's still a war going on. I still choose to do the things that I don't want to do. I know that sin has no power over me, and yet I still give in to it. He's being open. He's being honest. And then he says, in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and us placing our faith and trust in Him as our Savior, Him alone, there is one way to God. Not many ways, there is one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. He is the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. By doing that, you are no longer condemned. So while sin has no power over us, do we still sin? We do. Every day. Every day. And I don't know about you, but I hate it. I hate it. I, I, I look back almost like instantaneous. After I sin, after I do something that I know is not pleasing to God, I look back and I say, I hate that I did that. Why? Why do I keep giving in to that? And then I have to preach the gospel to myself. And especially Romans 8.1, it says there is no condemnation. Jesus took the wrath. He took the penalty for you and for me. So while we may still sin, we are not condemned. Now the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, uh, I believe does tell us that as children, we will be disciplined. Now who loves discipline? No. See, discipline is done out of love. As we become members of the family of God, God is our Father. And is it loving to allow a little child to run out into the street? No, it's not loving. Instead, as that child runs into the street, it's wise and loving to bring that child back and to discipline them, especially when you've told them six, seven, eight times not to do that. They need to know that you are trying to protect them. It is for their good. And this is what God does with His children. This discipline it is good. It is for our good. It is loving. But remember, through Christ, there is no condemnation. You see, the Spirit is now alive within us. It is at work within us. And while there is a war going on between the flesh and between the Spirit, the Spirit will win. You see, the problem is we choose to sin. Sin is now a choice. We give in to it. That's why Paul, as he just goes through this chapter, we're not going to go through much of it. He says, live your life according to the Spirit. Give your life over to the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And here's what it says. Very end. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? How fine? It's going to answer the question, how final is this sacrifice of Christ? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In Christ you have everything that you need. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see, God takes the problem that we have, 
the problem of our unrighteousness and His righteousness and how we cannot come to Him. And He justifies us. He makes us right with Him. It's standing before the judge and hearing innocent, not guilty. He made us right. So who is to condemn in verse 34? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, look, none of your circumstances... No circumstance that you encounter is going to be able to separate you from the union you have in Christ. That you are dead and raised with Christ. You share in His death and resurrection. It does not matter what you go through. If you belong to Jesus, nothing you go through will ever separate you from Him. He is that powerful. He is that good. And He is that much in control of everything that is going on on this planet. 37 says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you have victory. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It does not matter what you face, students. Your security with Christ is not found in your circumstances. It's found in Christ alone. He is the one that makes you right. He is the one you place your faith and trust in. His death, burial, resurrection, where He became the ransom, He took you out of captivity. Captivity and slavery of sin. He took you out of that. And he says, no, you are now part of my family. You are my brothers and sisters. God is our Father. You were once in this broken relationship with God, and now I have fixed it. I have taken you out of slavery, and now you are my, in my family. The life that Christ brings is summed up in that you were dead in sin, and now you are alive to God. Now, here's the question. Can living things do stuff? Can you do stuff? Yes. yes. Okay. God is holy and perfect and just. And I'm not. And you're not. And that's a problem. Because I don't know about you, like I said earlier, I don't want to be separated from God the problem is solved in Jesus Christ and what He did for us through His death, burial, resurrection. How He is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And now as King, He has made a way for His kingdom to be filled with people like me. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for sending Your Son for the work that was done on my behalf. Jesus, as my substitute, I just ask that you would continually press this on our minds, that, that your message, your gospel would capture our hearts.
that it's something that we would just live out every day. We would remind ourselves every day of who we are in Christ and that no circumstance, no situation can ever separate us from His love. Father, You do love us. And You showed us the ultimate token of that love in sending Your Son to die for us. And He didn't stay dead. He was brought back to life. He defeated death and has given us hope. Thank you for the hope that is found in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Joe Malarkey. He's a youth pastor at the Monroe Evangelical Free Church. And this was a message that was given to our seniors at Nebraska Christian Schools. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.